want you to for a moment to think about the first time that you saw the ocean. Probably the Atlantic on this side of the country. Perhaps it was the Pacific or maybe if you were in the military, it was somewhere far reaching around the world. There's something about the first time you touch or smell or even as a small child, maybe even taste the salt water and realize that it's something spectacular. There's something very almost magical, but it's not magical. It is because God created the oceans. I had the pleasure of living in Southern California. Some would say the word pleasure and living in California don't go in the same sentence together, but living close to the Pacific Ocean for a dozen years. And it's one of those things that when you live so close, you take it for granted. You know, people would think, oh, you bet you go to the ocean all the time and you see the waves all the time. No, very rarely just get busy and inundated with life. And that's the way it works. And those of you that have spent time in Florida and close to the coast, you understand what I mean by that. But there's something about the ocean. There's something about water that is refreshing both from a spiritual point of view, because we know that water in baptism with the blood of Jesus saves us, but also powerful in the sense that God created the oceans and he created great lakes and he created great waterways that are really peaceful and powerful and purposeful in our lives. And when we think about these songs about oceans and we think about the tempest, the raging and the master that calms the seas, We are reminded of the great account in the book of Mark as found there or Matthew chapter 8 or also in the book of Luke of where Jesus simply says to the waters, peace, be still. What a beautiful statement. And only Jesus can make that kind of a statement. Oh, we could say that to a storm and it's not going to make any difference at all. But Jesus rebukes as the account reads, as we'll read here in just a moment. And he says, peace be still. I don't know what his inflection was. I don't know what the tone was. I don't know where uh, the emphasis was. Was it peace be still or was it peace be still? I I don't know. But I know that the same God, our Savior Jesus Christ, who commands the waters and the storms 2,000 years ago is in charge of our lives today. And of course, therein lies the biggest application. You know, we usually save applications toward the end of our studies. But here's a big one. Jesus provides peace to you and provides peace to me as well. Peace be still. And there are individuals who are here with us today and those who are listening from beds of affliction and those who are shut in and unable to be with us who are wanting peace in their physical lives or in their spiritual lives or in the lives of those that you care about, those around you. And I hope that this message will be helpful to you. You know, we began by talking in our Bible class period this morning about authority and the fact that all authority belongs to our King, belongs to our God. And I appreciate David taking us through Acts chapters 7 and 8 and helping us to understand that that's where all the power is. And then our brother took us in the Lord's Supper all the way back to the book of Numbers. I'm not sure I've ever heard of a Lord's Supper talk that goes back to the book of Numbers in my 40-some years of life. But he did an excellent job of transferring that into the power that God has in our lives today. And the songs that we have been able to communicate with one another today are songs about power 
in nature where God commands it and God is in control. And so we're talking all about the power of Jesus together today. I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 where we're going to read about six or seven verses which are likely familiar to you. David and I engage in a number of mutual studies with different saints and those who are perhaps interested. And we recently were studying uh, Mark chapter 4 in one of our Tuesday studies. And I just thought this passage was just so beautiful. And I think you agree with me as well. It is a beautiful passage. All of the Gospels are beautiful. Everything we read, even the the tragic stories, as Brother Bill talked about, those are good for us to read and to understand. We're thankful for your presence as we read from Mark chapter 4. We have a lot of our members who are gone today vacationing or visiting family, whatever the case may be, on a holiday weekend. And we have a lot of visitors with us today, and we're grateful that you are here and hope that you will be uh, the beneficiary of what we're trying to do, but more importantly, that God is honored by our presence. In Mark chapter 4, as a preacher friend of mine says, let's read this with those fresh eyes, as if you've never read it before. And in chapter 4 and verse 35, it says, on the same day, That when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, this is not an ocean. This is a sea. It's a big sea. And we are told historically that the Sea of Galilee is a sea that is prone to frequent storms because of the topography and because of the elevation. And so storms were not all that uncommon. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him. That is a profound passage. And it's one that has so many different lessons that we can learn. I've picked out four. You could probably pick out 40 lessons. But I wanted to share with you some things that I thought were interesting in thinking about this particular text. And the first of those is, let's be realistic that there is a cost to serving Jesus. Luke chapter 14 is where Jesus famously says on one occasion, you must count the cost and pick up your own cross and follow after me daily. There are some risks in following Jesus. And that's one of the things that when we talk to someone about becoming a Christian, when someone says, I'm ready to serve God, I want to be baptized, 
probably somewhere in that conversation, you know that you've got to give up some things. You know that, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning, there may be some difficult days that even in a free country that we are privileged to live in, there might be some persecutions that come our way. I want you to understand that following Jesus comes with some risks. And the reason I point that out is because these disciples of Jesus weren't the only ones who got caught up in the terrible storm. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to suggest that only Jesus and his disciples on that boat that carried them while Jesus was sleeping, that they were the only ones affected by the storm. I'm, I'm convinced that, that the Holy Spirit does not include little details for just filler space. The Bible is a relatively brief book. And so when you find a detail included, I think it's good for us to sometimes ponder, why is that detail included? Now, it may be that it's just to give some sort of emphasis to something that may not be something that's spiritually or physically or thematically important. But I find it interesting in Mark chapter 4 and verse 36 where it says, other little boats were also with him. That's always amazed me, just these other little boats traveling around. Now, we know that Jesus has attracted multitudes. That's the word that's used in verse 36 in the very first part of, of the verse. We know that by this point in the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the Gospel accounts, only 16 chapters, that we are now well into the public ministry and miracles of Jesus. More on that in just a moment. But these smaller boats, you would think, are less likely to be able to withstand the terror of the storm and are less stable than the boat in which the disciples traveled. If you've been on a big ship, whether it be a military ship or whether it be on a cruise ship, you don't feel the waves as you would on a small ship. I remember years ago, I had a friend who had a very small boat that could fit maybe six to eight people. And we were in the bay of San Diego. And then he took us across into the ocean. And it was amazing the difference that once the waves start moving, well, you're either going to like it or you're not going to like it, if you understand what I mean. That's different than being on a large ship where you don't even feel because of the stabilizers. I know they didn't have stabilizers back then. But you understand the point that I'm trying to make? Is that these little boats were going to feel the impact of the storm, perhaps more so than the big boat on which Jesus. And notice what is said about those little boats, besides the fact that they travel with Jesus. Nothing. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that there's nothing said of those boats, as we'll talk about in just a moment or two. Let me suggest to you just at the outset of our study, two questions about the little boats. Number one, why were they following Jesus? And one of those is because of Mark chapter 4 and verse 1, they had by this point attracted the great multitude. That's the most obvious answer, it seems to me. And so Jesus, no matter where he goes, if he's on land or by sea, people are going to try to get as close to him as possible. Another early application is wherever Jesus goes, we'll go. Do we not sing if Jesus goes with me, I'll go. If he goes someplace, I'm going there. If he gets on a boat, I'm on the boat. If he's on an airplane, I'm on an airplane. Someone once said that I'm afraid to fly. And someone said, well, don't you understand that Jesus is going to be with you everywhere? He says, no, Jesus says, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> no extra charge for that this morning. 
But Jesus had attracted this great multitude by this point. But let me suggest also that Jesus had proven himself to be an astonishing teacher, not just a magician in the eyes of the non-believer, not just a miracle worker in the eyes of those who believed in his authenticity and his power, but you remember what the very tagline is to the end of the Sermon on the Mount? And they were astonished because he taught as one having authority or power and not as one of the scribes or the Pharisees. I think the bigger question and the one that I think we learn more from is the second question, and that is, why is nothing said of these boats? And that is, uh, obviously, the focus is on Jesus and his disciples. I think that's the biggest thing that we can get out of this. But perhaps, and this is just a perhaps, and I put this in italics, actually, the Holy Spirit wanted us to see two or three other little things here. First, there are countless unnamed men and women who have faced storms for Jesus. You know, we know about Stephen. We know about Peter. We know about James. We know about John the baptizer. We know probably about Paul from historical references to how these great men, these martyrs for Jesus died. And so you've got a handful to a dozen individuals that we know And then Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all those other individuals who served God and who were sawn into and individuals who were were destroyed and individuals who were persecuted and were plagued by political uh, and religious authorities. There are countless unnamed men and women who are our brothers and were our brothers and sisters who were individuals who died for the cause of Christ and will never know their names. But that's okay. Because they were caught up in the storm. They got close to Jesus and it got dangerous sometimes in serving Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that this storm here is some retribution. I'm just seeming to me that it was something that happened in the time in which they were on the boat. And as I mentioned earlier, that it was something that happened frequently that these men aren't recognized by other men. Those people that have died in the course of salvation's role in teaching and preaching, they are important because God knows who sets out to serve him, and he never forgets that. That may be, and again, I use the word perhaps, and I use that uh, cautiously, why the Holy Spirit has included this detail. If nothing else, remember as an application that if no one else knows the good that you do and the good that you're going to do in this life, including but not limited to your life being sacrificed for the cause of Jesus, that God knows. He knows all things and knows the sacrifices that we make. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that there's a right way to come to Jesus for help and maybe a not-so-right way to come to Jesus for help. After all, we pray and we say, Lord, will you please help me with things that I need in my life, physically, 
financially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Appreciate Roger leading us in prayer this morning and acknowledging that we go to God and petition him for the things that we need, which is exactly what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 seems to suggest. But note, if you would, the statement of the disciples in Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, and similarly in the gospel uh, uh, account of Luke. And that is, teacher... Do you not care that we are perishing? That's the new King James Version. Your version may be slightly different. But teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I would like to say that if I was going to approach Jesus, I'd be very respectful with my approach to him and that I would word it very well. But in the middle of a storm, I may not always approach Jesus with the same caution and the same sense of Uh, appropriateness as I otherwise should. And so the fact of the matter is, it seems as if there's an insinuation that Jesus didn't care. Master, do you not care that we are perishing? We are all going to die here. But the insinuation that Jesus didn't care is completely uncalled for. How do we know that? We'll go back to our scripture reading from uh, earlier this morning and consider, if you would, the evidence. We are not going to take the time to read these 40 or 50 verses, but let me just put these on the screen here for you. Jesus had healed a man with a withered hand and had done so at risk of the ridicule of those who saw him do it on the Sabbath day, as we read in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Earlier in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had healed a leper, and taken that man's horrendous disease that was not only physically debilitating, but socially uh, astonishing, taken it away from him. In Luke chapter 7, these are all things that seemingly, if you look at the harmony of the Gospels, as we recently studied, came before Mark chapter 4, very late in the chapter Jesus had healed a centurion's servant in Luke chapter 7. Later in that chapter, Jesus had raised a man from the dead. Jesus had healed a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And so there's all these different pieces of evidence to supply Jesus cares. We sometimes sing, and I I appreciate, I did not give Josh an easy assignment because I knew Josh couldn't handle a, a tough assignment this morning. But this was, I knew, as I was driving yesterday, I thought, he's going to have fun with these songs, isn't he? And he did, and he picked good ones that remind us that, uh, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. The days are weary, the long nights dreary. I know my Savior cares. I, I have all the evidence from scriptures. I have all the evidence from the past in my life. Jesus cares for me. I have no doubt of that. And so there's a right way to approach Jesus and perhaps a not so right way to approach Jesus. And let me suggest to you that we have to be very careful to never go to our God with a sense of entitlement. God, I'm here. Now listen up. Now I I know that none of us would ever approach God that way. But are there times where we have prayed maybe, and when I say we, I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me, where we pray for maybe a day or two or three straight about something really hard in our lives, something we're really concerned about, something that maybe we are even very fretful about. And you catch yourself after day three of praying and you say, hmm, I've prayed about this a lot. 
But have I told God, thank you for all the good things he's done for me? Have I praised him for all the good in my life and in the lives of those that I care about? Because it's very easy for me, and I, I, I hope that I'm not unique in this way. It's very easy for me to get caught up in asking God for the things that I want and I think I need in my life, and then maybe hasten to forget, wow, you've really done a lot for me in the past, and I need to be thankful for that as well. So we need to marry the asking God for the things in our lives with thanking him for all the good that he has done. Job chapter 1 came to mind, and you're familiar with the story of Job. But in Job chapter 1 and verse 21, there's a statement that is made that is as important then as it is now. Where he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And remember, the great King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to be studying this a little bit later uh, in the fall, if I remember correctly. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 22, there's a statement that is made. He says, while the child was alive, you remember the account here, while the child was alive, I fasted, I wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now, now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There needs to be a sense of approaching God appropriately. And we need to be careful to make sure that we don't go to God and say, Hey, God, don't you care that I've got this going on in my life? And again, I, I, I think that most of us would never make that statement, but would that cross our mind or would that be lacking in our prayer life in the way that we approach our great and glorious creator? Number three, talk about softball, like Josh and I were talking about. Jesus is very powerful. You say, well, wait a minute. Tell me something I don't already know. I'm telling you something you know, but you've got to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of the great power of our God. And because we talk about it so much, it seems to me we run the risk of taking the power of God for granted. But I want you to really stop and consider what happened in Mark chapter 4. Think about this and pretend with those fresh eyes that we talked about that this is the first time you've ever read this particular uh, account. You would go, wow, I can't believe this just happened. And put yourself talk about the same boat with Jesus, right? And you're there, you're fearful, and the wind, the way that it sounds, the boat is rocking left and right, forward and back. You don't have any Dramamine on board. I mean, this is a real serious circumstance you've got here. And what does Jesus do? The text says he does two things. Number one, it says he rebukes the wind. And what happens? It says the wind stopped, or the New King James uses the word ceased. What happens to storms? A storm comes in, a storm leaves. A storm comes in, a storm leaves, right? Generally ceasing, what happens is winds die down. But I don't get the picture here of the winds dying down. It's not like Jesus said, uh, I'm going to rebuke you, wind. Now, guys, just hang on for the next 45 minutes and the storm will pass. 
No, instead, they don't die down. This is not normal. This is abnormal what's happening here. Which this miracle that Jesus is performing is a far cry from the miracles that we see, miracles quotes, all right, on TV today, where you see people healing someone of something that you can't see. I've always found it interesting how modern-day miracle faith healers wear glasses. It's never made sense to me. It reminds me of the time where the miracle worker, in quotes, took the little boy who was deaf and mute, and he said, I want you to say Jesus. And the little boy just stood there to say Jesus. The little boy just stood there. For the third time, say Jesus. The little boy just stood, stood there. And the preacher said, it's going to take him some time. So the fact is, is that's not the case at all. That's not the way that miracle workers work today or that miracle workers worked back then when Jesus or the, other, or the apostles had the ability to do those great things. Let me suggest to you a second thing here. Jesus not only rebuked the wind, but Jesus here spoke to the sea. Well, you can imagine what this must have looked at from an outside perspective. He's speaking to an object. <laughs> He's, granted, the ocean is powerful, and the, and, and the ocean is, is spectacular. What happens? It says the waves obeyed. Even the waves obey Jesus. You know, if I'm on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and the waves get a little bit too raucous for me, I can't say, stop that. I may want to have that power. Then again, I don't want that power, right? But Jesus is able to speak to the sea and the waves obey. And it says there was a great calm. Literally, if you're looking at a word-for-word translation from the Greek into English, it's literally there was a mega calm. It wasn't just a now it's going to calm down in the next hour. Boom, there's a calm. And... The, the phrase in the song that we just sang a few moments ago is the idea of the sun being reflected in the lake. You know, you don't see much of a reflection when the waves are up and down, but when it's crystal clear and it's calm, you can see the reflection of the sun. And that's what that song was trying to convey. Note, if you would, Jesus's power was not stolen but rather was granted by God that he had the ability to do these great things as outlined in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And let me conclude then with this, and that is there are, it seems to me, two major types of fear. And I've talked about fear a couple of times over the last six to nine months, and invariably every time I do so, I go back and advertise the sermon that David did about two years ago on fear. If you want to go to our website, God's Redeemed, and you look up that sermon, godsredeemed.org, a great sermon on the different types of fear and the way that we are to fear our Creator. But I believe that what's happening here is an illustration or some sort of an exhibition of two types of fear. Number one, this occurrence is a great reminder of these two types of fear that we need to make sure that we comprehend and understand. What was the first fear that they appreciated or experienced? It was a very earth-based, natural, 
humanistic fear that we are all going to die. And you don't care that we are perishing. We are afraid that we are going to die. Jesus, in fact, noticed this in his first question that he posed to them. He says, how is it that you have no faith? Why are you so fearful? Jesus asking these questions. But note, if you would, that the second question is connected because... Here's the big application before we draw ourselves to a close. And that is without appropriate faith in Christ Jesus, we are left to fear. If you do not have faith in Jesus, if you do not have faith in the life that is to come, if you don't have faith in God's word, you are going to be fearful. And there is frankly not much I can do about that. I mean, it's the sadness of going to someone who is on their deathbed and uh, they are not a believer, they are not a follower, and they're afraid of death. What is it that you can do to comfort that person? There's not much, which is why I, I always say, you know, on behalf of David and me and anybody else that preaches funerals, make our lives a whole lot easier by being as faithful as you can because it makes our jobs a whole lot easier. We cannot preach you into heaven or keep you, preach you from going to hell. But we can share with others and share with you the hope that you have because of your faith in Jesus the Christ. The second fear is this. Wow, this individual is amazing. Now, why they hadn't picked up on that completely up until this point is beyond me. But then again, if I was in the boat, I might have responded the same way with the first type of fear. The disciples were asking each other a question in what I would call fearful amazement. Because it says in verse 41 in the New King James Version, word number three, and they feared exceedingly. And they asked one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, going back to the point that I made early and then late, if this was the first time they'd seen Jesus, this question might have been more acceptable. But of course, by this point, they had seen so much that they really know that this man is more than just a man. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And he has the power to calm the sea, to rebuke the wind, to make the storm go away, and to provide comfort to these people. The greatest application, and the one that I conclude with here in this final slide, is this, that when you think about a storm that transpires, when you think about peace, be still, Because we fear God, we should not be afraid. Think about that for a moment. And that's not profound because I said it. It's just profound because of the truth that lies therein. Because we fear God and because we obey him in that righteous fear, we are not afraid of what will happen in this life nor in the life to come. But... If you do not fear God with reverence and respect and you fail to obey him, you should be very afraid of what's to happen to your soul, which is exactly what uh, Brother Bruce talked about a a few weeks ago or a week or so ago in Hebrews chapter 10 when he said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a God who lives 
And that's the God that we are privileged to serve. You may have all kinds of challenges in your life, all kinds of stresses and all kinds of difficulties. It doesn't matter whether it's financial or physical or medical, whether it is spiritual, whether it is mental. God says, I can provide you with peace. Peace be still. But if you're not a Christian, you don't have the God that we serve on your side. Oh, he wants to be your savior, but you have to claim him, confess him, repent, and be baptized to have their sins washed away. And if that's something you're uh, excited about doing today, we'd be glad and excited to help you. If you're ready to become a child of God, or if as one of his children, you have erred and you need to come home, we'd welcome the opportunity to help you. If we can in any way assist, let us know. I'll take a little stand while we sing.